We've been teaching a series uh, of lessons for the last several weeks on the, the subject of Jesus, our high priest. Now, the Bible tells us, and we'll look further at, at some of these scriptures a little bit uh, later in the service, but the Bible tells us that Jesus was exalted. In Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18, it says that Jesus was exalted or would be exalted, speaking to the future, said Jesus would be exalted for one purpose, and that was to show mercy. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus has compassion for our infirmities or our weaknesses or where we fall short and see our, our own shortcomings. The Bible tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God for one and only one purpose, and that is to execute His covenant, God's covenant, the better covenant established upon better promises, and the, everything about the Bible that tells us that the, the present day that we live in is that the execution of that covenant is the mercy of God to be shown. For that reason, we're going here to, look to uh, Psalm chapter 145, and we're reading the 8th and ninth verses because here's something that David said inspired by the Holy Ghost in the Old Testament about the goodness of God. Let's start reading in verse 8. It says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Now, we've made this statement before. If you've got a glass that's full of water, there's no room for anything else. Where it says that the Lord is full of compassion, that means there's no room for anything else. Now, so much of the church world sees God as some austere judge that's waiting for you to step out of line and get you. Now, folks, think about how stupid that is. What would he be waiting for? The very people that say, yeah, God is, God is a God of judgment. He's just looking for someone, his children, to step out of line, and then he's going to bring destruction upon them. He hadn't found something already? Seriously? Do you realize what pride that is to say, the only reason that I've made it this far is because I haven't messed up? Okay, I know people don't want to think of it in those terms. But that's exactly what it is. That's spiritual pride. Yeah, God will get you if you mess up. Who hasn't messed up? And why didn't he get them? Why are we not all just destroyed, lightning bolts just coming to the earth consistently, bang, 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 there goes the church. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the Lord is gracious. The word gracious means disposed to show favors. Some people are disposed to be extroverts. Some people are disposed to be introverts. Some people are disposed to be optimists. Some people are disposed to be pessimists. That means their natural inclination. The Bible says God's natural inclination is to show favors. That's what that means. He is disposed to show favors. That is his natural inclination. To show favors. You ever asked anybody to do you a favor? Did you try to prove how you deserved it? No, that favor is based on relationship. Hey, do me a favor. If you don't have a relationship with them, then you go about asking for that favor in a little different way. Go to the store at the mall, one of these haughty toddy stores, and ask for a favor. You do it very carefully because you don't have any relationship there. You might or might not get what you're looking for. Not so with God. The Bible says the Lord is gracious. He's disposed to show favors and full of compassion. Notice the connection between grace and compassion. Now, we've made this statement before, but it bears repetition. We're going to have to go over some. We'll try to do it quickly, but we're going to have to go over some uh, territory that we've already covered over the last several weeks to establish a point. But I've very definitely got somewhere I want to get to this morning. The word compassion and the word mercy are the same in the Hebrew. 
The word compassion and the word mercy are the same in the Greek. So anytime you see compassion, you could substitute mercy in the Old Testament. Anytime you see mercy, you could substitute compassion. The words merciful and compassionate, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, are exactly the same words. So it's left up to the, to the translators to tell us whether or not they want to say it's mercy or whether or not they want to say it's compassion. There's no difference between the two. And both of those words literally mean this. It means to be full of eager yearning. That means God wants to do for you more than you want Him to do it. Boy, that takes some thinking about, doesn't it? Because so much of the church world has this idea that, oh, I want it so bad and God won't do it. Why won't God do it? You have people making stupid statements like, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord. Really? Seriously? Yeah, yeah, when I get to heaven, I've got some questions to ask the Lord. Why, things I don't understand. Why He let this happen to me? I would dare say that when you get to heaven, He might have a few for you. Like, why didn't you do what the Word said? Here's what it said. You had the book. Why didn't you do it? Here, the Bible tells us that the Lord's full of compassion. That means He's full of eager yearning. He wants to do more for you than you want Him to do. It means to show pity or to have pity upon. It means to love tenderly. Now, notice again that the Bible says the Lord is full of eager yearning. He's full of pity. He's full of tender love. That means there's no room for anything else. This idea that people are working, you know, just to get into God's good grace or get into God's favor or to try to stay in the place where God won't do something against them, they're missing the boat. And as a parent, the last thing in the world I want is for my children to think of me wrongly. Isn't that true for you? I want my kids to know me. I want them to know what I'm, who I am. I want them to know my character. I want them to know what I'll do for me, for them. I don't want them going out saying, well, Dad's a mean old guy. Now, if I have been a mean old guy, I can understand that, you know, in a certain situation. But that's not what I want them to know about me. If I'm good, here, here I want to do good for my kids and they think I'm mean. How do you think God feels so much about the church? He's saying, come on. I'm telling you. I'm showing you. The Lord is full of compassion, full of eager yearning, full of pity, full of tender love. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. Now, I grew up in the Baptist church, so the part that really got my attention about that was slow to anger because we're taught the, that God is an austere judge. Thank God He is slow to anger. But notice how anger is covered by grace, compassion, and mercy. It's surrounded the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Yeah, He's slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all and His tender mercies are over all of His good works. Please notice it says God is good to everybody. The Bible says God causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. That means, and, and David is a perfect example of this. You look at the Psalms. Some of the Psalms just really speak to me. But in a hard place, there are some Psalms that you don't want to read. Because David spent a lot of time complaining about why are good things happening to my enemies? That's not a real blessing when you're in the same boat. But David spent a lot of time saying, Lord, why? I'm doing right, they're doing wrong, they're blessed, and I'm out here scrounging around running from King Saul. Why is it working this way? Very simply, because the Lord is good to all. He, shows, he causes the rain to fall upon the just and on the unjust. That means God does not try to punish people to make them come to Him. Romans chapter 2 says it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. 
Now, folks, there's no question that the church world, by and large, has scared some people into heaven by preaching on hell. No question about that. But the Bible says it's the goodness of God that makes people want to change. It's the goodness of God. If we'll major on the goodness of God, that the Lord is good to all, if we'll tell people what belongs to them and what they can have by giving their heart to to the Lord Jesus, by coming into the family of God, you'll get a lot more people that want to come in instead of just saying, well, I don't really want to, but I'm scared of going to hell, so I guess I better. The Lord is good to all. And now notice the last one. It said, and his tender mercies are over all of his works. Please notice what that has to mean. That means everything God has ever done was because of his mercy. Why? Because his tender mercies were over all of his works. That means every example you can find where God did something good, every miracle Jesus produced, every every healing that Jesus performed, every good thing that God did, Old Testament or New Testament, were done because of one thing, and that was his mercies. And notice mercies is plural. Tender mercies. Now, as I said, uh, uh, really to get the most out of this uh, this morning, you need to hear a lot of the things that were said before. We don't have time to go over everything that we've said. Uh, you can download them from the website. You can get the CDs, whatever works for you. Uh, it doesn't matter. But the information is, is uh, of vital importance. But we're going to cover some things really quickly. And so forgive me for going too fast. I'm just going to hit some high spots and some things that we've talked about before. In Mark chapter 1, for example... Uh, well, let me make this statement before I uh, to preface this. Most of the church world nowadays thinks of the mercy of God in one and only one area, and that's forgiveness of sins. God's merciful to save. And the church world, modern-day church world, has defined saved, uh, salvation as very simply the forgiveness of sins. And that's it. That's all they think salvation is. God is merciful to answer whoever calls on the Lord for salvation. He saves them from their sins. But after that... The church doesn't really say this, but kind of leave the impression after that you're pretty much on your own. Because you use the mercy of God for salvation. Now, if you, if you sin again, He's merciful to forgive you again. Sure, oh yeah, His mercy is always available where forgiveness of sins is concerned. But that's all that the church world, by and large, the modern day church, by and large, sees the mercy of God to be. That's not the way it was in Jesus' ministry. In Mark chapter 1, in uh, verse 40, it says, There came a leper to Him, beseeching Him, and kneeling down to Him, and saying... If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He believes God can. He's not sure if he will. Folks, this is the picture of the modern-day church. Oh, yeah, I believe God can. God can do anything. All things are possible with God. Well, what will he do? Well, you never know what God will do. Honest question. Jesus didn't put the guy down for his position, but he corrected his thinking. He said, Lord, if you can, or if you will, I'm sorry, if you will, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and said unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. What caused Jesus to be moved with compassion? I think I see two things here. Jesus was moved with compassion, number one, because the guy was sick with leprosy. There was no hope. Destruction was his only end. I think Jesus was moved with compassion because of the man's situation. I think Jesus was also moved with compassion because the guy didn't know whether God would help him. I think both of those things moved God with compassion. But regardless, the net effect is that the man is healed not because Jesus is proving that he's the Son of God, but because Jesus is moved with compassion. 
Church world nowadays likes to say, well, God, Jesus healed the sick to prove that he was the Son of God. The problem with that is you can't ever find that in Scripture. Interesting thought. Wrong thought, but interesting thought. But you can't find it in Scripture. You can't find any time that Jesus said, I'm healing you to prove that I'm the Son of God. But you can find over and over and over again where it says Jesus healed because he was moved with compassion. In other words, the Bible emphasizes the mercy of God. Religion emphasizes the deity of Jesus in his works. Now, on face value, that, shouldn't that be a good thing? The deity of Jesus in, in, in his works, shouldn't that be a good thing? Well, yeah, but how many times did Jesus call himself the Son of God as opposed to when he called himself the Son of Man? He didn't emphasize that. Why do we? Jesus emphasized something else. So why, why do we, the modern-day church, take a different approach? Matthew chapter 14, the Bible says in verse 14, Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. Here's his mercy. And was moved with compassion toward them. Now what did his compassion move him to do? And he healed their sick. So please notice, folks, when Jesus was here on the earth, the mercy or the compassion of God resulted in healing. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus te- uh, the story tells us, uh, the, uh, we have the story of the, uh, the leper, I'm sorry, the blind man, excuse me, the blind man that comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, have mercy upon me. He's asking for mercy. And Jesus turns around and said, what wilt thou that I do unto you? In other words, mercy was not confined to just one thing. He's asking for mercy and Jesus says, where, where do you need it? Which tells us that his tender mercies that are over all of his works don't just apply to one thing even though the modern-day church says it's just one thing, forgiveness of sins, Jesus said, where do you need it? What will you that I should do unto you? What do you want me to do? You've asked for mercy. What do you want? How could mercy only be one thing if Jesus is saying, what do you want? Well, I want mercy. Well, but how? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus healed his eyes. Now, is it just healing? That mercy is shown in in Jesus' ministry? Nope, it's not. It's shown in deliverance. Mark chapter 5 tells us the story of the Gadarene demoniac. Here's a guy that's living in the, the tombs. He's cutting himself with stones. He, they've tried to chain him up. They've tried to bind him with fetters, all these kinds of things, and he breaks out of it. He's out there running crazy. He's, like I said, he's cutting himself with stones. He's, he's naked and screaming and doing all kinds of crazy, crazy things. Folks, the devil does not bring you a positive result. And you see some of those things happening today. You see a lot of times with teenagers, they start cutting themselves. But that's nothing more than the devil. Somebody yielding to the devil, the devil punching their buttons. So anyway, this guy's out in the tombs, and, and Jesus starts walking through that region. It's the region of Decapolis. Jesus starts walking through that area, and this guy comes and runs to him and falls down before him and worships him. Well, the net effect is Jesus delivers him, casts the devil out of this guy. He still has some modicum of his will because the man came and worshipped him. Evil spirits don't do that with Jesus. But the man came down and fell down before Jesus and worshipped him. And after Jesus sets him free, then everybody from the town comes back out there and sees that this guy is, is set free. This guy is in his right mind. He put his clothes on. People in their right mind do that. So he's sitting there clothed. He's, he's, he's responsible. He's, he, he looks normal. Everything is right now with him. And everybody gets scared and says, Jesus, you're going to have to go. 
Now, when that takes place, it says that the, uh, that the, the man that was delivered implored Jesus and he said, let me come with you. I don't blame him. I wouldn't want to stay there with that group of people either. Jesus said, let me come with you. Yet Jesus answers him and says in Mark chapter 5, verse 19, Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but said unto him, Go home to your friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for thee and has had compassion on thee. So what was it that caused the man to be set free? It was the compassion of Jesus. Jesus said so. He said, you're free. Go tell everybody that you're free because the Lord has had compassion on you. So the mercy of God didn't extend just to physical healing. In this man's case, it set him free from the power of the devil. Folks, the mercy of God will still set you free from bondage. Now what happened? This guy did exactly what Jesus told him to do. If you compare the Gospels and, and, uh, and realize you get a good reference uh, Bible or Thompson reference, chain reference Bible, something like that, that will show you where different things took place in the nation of Israel, you'll find that in, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Matthew chapter 15, it tells us when Jesus comes back through that same region of Decapolis, and here was the result of the man going out and telling about the compassion of the Lord upon him. And great multitudes, Matthew 15, verse 30, and great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole. That means missing body parts being replaced. The lame to walk and the blind to see. And one of the greatest healing crusades that Jesus ever had came as the result of this one man going to tell about the compassion of God on him to set him free. And they glorified the God of Israel. Now let's talk about that for just a moment. They glorified the God of Israel. You go through the Gospels and you'll find out that people are not glorifying God while they're sick, but they glorify God when they get well. Modern day church has turned that completely around. Oh, well, you're supposed to glorify God in your sickness. Really? Where's that in the Bible? Oh, they'll always go to Paul's thorn. Folks, Paul's thorn was not physical sickness. Paul's thorn was persecution. And why is he glorifying God? Why is he magnifying God? Because he finds the answer. The answer is, when I'm weak, when it looks like something I can't handle, the Lord is strong. In other words, he's saying, I've found that the key is not for me to try to be able to control everything, but even the things that I can't have, have any control over, God always comes through. So that's why he says, I'll glorify God in my infirmities. That word infirmities is not the word sickness. It's the word weakness. You ever been weak financially? You ever had a bill that was too big for you to pay? That's an infirmity. What are you supposed to do? Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Paul's doing the same thing James told us to do. You can't find anybody glorifying God in Jesus' ministry while they're sick, but you can always find them glorifying God when they get well. Furthermore, Jesus said it's better for us. He talked to his disciples and he said, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit can't come. Now, what's the Holy Spirit going to do? John chapter 16 and verse 14, I think it is, he said of the Holy Spirit, he said in verse 13, he'll show you things to come. Verse 14, he said, he will glorify me. Now, isn't it interesting that the work of God when Jesus was here on the earth produced healings and deliverances so that that caused people to glorify God? And Jesus said himself that he did the works by the Holy Spirit. 
So when the Holy Spirit was operating through Jesus, it set people free and healed them, and that brought God, God glory. Yet you've got the modern-day church nowadays that says God doesn't heal anymore. He doesn't set people free anymore in the same way. All that stuff's been done away with, and we're supposed to glorify God in our sickness. Folks, if you had not figured this out, I hate religion. I hate religious preaching. I don't hate the people that do it. I assume that they're ignorant. They may be sincere, but they're ignorant of what the Bible says. But that kind of preaching holds people in bondage. It robs them of the knowledge of God's mercy. And therefore, it robs them from their freedom. And I believe, personal opinion, you judge it for yourself, I believe that is the number one area, the number one way that the devil has kept the church from being the church full of the power of the Holy Spirit more than anything else, and that is by hiding the mercy of God from us. We, know about, we hear a lot about God's judgment. How much do we hear about His mercy? I don't know of anything that we hear of God's mercy outside of the mercy to forgive, the mercy to save. Is that the only areas that we saw the mercy of God? Nope. Mark chapter 8 and verse 2, Jesus tells us after, the, after the, uh, the multitude has been with Him for three days and gone without food, Jesus says, I have compassion on the multitude. This is the 4,000. I have compassion on the multitude because they have been now with me three days and have nothing to eat. So what did He do? He multiplied seven loaves and two fishes. He fed 4,000 people. Why? Because He had compassion on them. So you see the mercy or the compassion of God for healing in Jesus' ministry. You see the mercy and the compassion of God for deliverance in Jesus' ministry. You see the mercy and the compassion of God for provision in Jesus' ministry. Yet now the mercy of God, which by the way the Bible says over and over and over again, the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever, but now His mercy only is forgiveness of sins. You hear a lot of people say, well, that stuff's not for us today. Is mercy not for us today? We're talking about the Bible definitions of mercy. We're talking about the Bible examples of mercy. That's not for us today. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Okay, so what's that saying? Jesus had compassion on the multitudes because they needed help. And so what did he tell his disciples to do? He said, pray. But Matthew wasn't written in chapter and verse any more than you would write a letter in chapter and verse. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1 tells us what Jesus did because he had compassion on the multitudes. He called his 12 disciples and gave them the same powers that he had to preach, to heal, and to deliver and sent them out to do the same work that he did. What I'm trying to tell you, folks, is that when the mercy of God was proclaimed, the harvest became too big for just one person, even Jesus. And so then he commissioned others to do the same works that he did. And that's what he told the disciples to do, us included, in this day after his resurrection. He said, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, we're supposed to do the greater works, and the greater works is getting people saved. Okay, I don't have a problem with that. Jesus didn't get people saved. He couldn't have. 
He hadn't yet been to the cross. So I don't have a problem with saying that the greater works is to get people saved. No problem with that at all. But what are you going to do when Jesus said, do the same works? He said, the same works that I do shall you do also and greater works. Okay, go ahead. Say the greater works is getting people saved. Fine, I don't care. I'm not going to argue with that. But who's going to do the same works? What about the people that are saying that they're doing the greater works and then saying the same works don't belong to us? Really? I guess Jesus has missed it on that. Well, what about the New Testament? Pastor Mike, you're just talking about the Gospels. We live in the epistles. I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3 said, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The Father of mercy or mercies? Mercies plural, the Father of mercies that means therefore that in the new testament the mercy of god cannot be confined to just one thing no matter what you think the one thing is if it's mercies that means plural that means multitude so the mercy of god cannot be just one thing even if you say that the one thing and even the most important thing is forgiveness of sins it can't be just one thing it cannot cannot can not Turn with me over to Mark chapter 2. With that in mind, knowing that the mercy of God can't be just one thing, notice what Jesus shows us in one example of his ministry. And remember, Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, if you want to know what God's like, just look at me. That means where Jesus is showing the mercy of God, that's going to reveal to us what God is like now because God never changes. God was pretty clear on that. He said, I'm God, I change not. Now, if somebody wants to argue with that, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm out of the conversation. God says, I'm God, I change not. He seems to be establishing that he doesn't change because he's God. And since he is God, I'm going to take his word for that. We know that's true of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, today, and forever. That means the same mercy that Jesus showed in his earthly ministry is the mercy he shows today. And the Bible says that he's a merciful and faithful high priest now. So if those scriptures are true, then that means the same healing mercy that he showed, the same delivering mercy that he showed, the same uh, providing or provision, mercies of provision that he showed, the same provision that he showed to increase the laborers for the harvest is the mercy that he has to show now because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, folks, I know, I, I, I know theologians will come up with lots of arguments for this. I get that. They'll be able to show me lots of commentaries where somebody said this and said that and said the other thing. The problem is I can't show you scriptures to refute it. But I'm just simple enough to believe that the Bible is true. I'm simple enough to believe that God was smart enough to say what he meant and really mean what he said. Jesus called that childlike faith. When my kids were little, I told them something. They didn't try to figure it out. They just said, great. They took my word for it. Now there's a little bit more question. These wonderful teenage years. 
But when they were kids, they didn't question anything. I told them. They believed it. They worked according to it. If I said, we're going to Disneyland later in the week, they went running and jumping through the house. They didn't try to figure out, how are we going to get there? Do you have enough money for that? How are you going to get off work? Wasn't any of that. They believed what I said and went happily and merrily along their way. That's childlike faith. That's what believing what God said to be true is like, folks. Now, in Mark chapter 2, the Bible says that, uh, well, I better start in verse 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum, and after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. The Revised Standard Version says that he was at his house or at home. And straightway, many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. That means four guys are carrying one guy that's crippled. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they couldn't get in the door, in other words, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed where the, wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, folks, let me, sh- let me make a, just a real quick statement here. You can always see faith. Real Bible faith can be seen. People say this, this all the time. Well, how do I know if I've got faith? How do I know if I'm really in faith? Folks, if you're in faith, you can see it. Because faith means you'll change the way you're living, you'll change the way you're talking, you'll change the way you behave toward God and your circumstance because you believe. If these guys did not believe that Jesus had the answer for them, they're certainly not going to take this crippled guy up on the roof. They're not going to break up the roof, and they're not going to let him down with ropes down to where Jesus is. Now, the four guys that carry him might be willing to do that, but what about the guy on the bed? Well, we can't get in the door. I know. Let's go up on the roof. We'll break up the roof and let you down with ropes. Are you crazy? I'd be okay with this if you're the one on the bed, but you're going to let me down with ropes? What if you drop me? Now, I know you're too spiritual to think in those terms. You know, people that read the story say, oh, of course he would do that. Would you do that? Not unless you believed. Not unless you believed your answer was at the end of that rope. So when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, please notice verse 5, he said to the sick of the palsy, rise, be healed. Is that what he said? He said to the sick of the palsy, your faith has made you whole, rise and walk. Is that what he said? He said to the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Why in the world? Does Jesus not know that this guy is sick? He sees the guy coming down from the roof. He's, he's being let down on the pallets. He thinks this guy is a great sinner who needs to be forgiven. What is Jesus doing? Is he playing tricks on the crowd? No. He's making a point. Please get the point. He said, son, your sins are forgiven you. But there were certain of the scribes sitting by. Here's the religious folks. They'll always show up. Sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? I'm sure they're in the crowd nodding when Jesus is saying things, and inside they're saying, who does he think he is? Get a lot of those people in church nowadays. Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? 
Folks, they're right. God's the only one that can. Jesus is making a point. God is the only one that can forgive sins. But Jesus immediately, when he perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said, why reason ye these things in your heart? Whether it is easier to say. He's saying, we would say it a little different in our modern day language. He would say, which is easier to say? Your sin, to the sick of the palsy, your sins be forgiven you or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. Now, folks, let me stop right there. Let me tell you what the modern day church does. Modern day church says to the cripple, your sins are forgiven you. You know why? Because there's no pressure on them. The modern day church deals with forgiveness of sins because if now, if we start talking about healing, we start laying hands on the sick, what if it doesn't work? What if they don't get well? That's going to make us look bad. And we tried that before and it didn't work last time. So therefore, we've developed this doctrine that that stuff's passed away. So what we want to do is we just want to deal with the unseen things like Jesus loves you. God forgives you. Just be patient. Jesus is coming back for us someday. That's a real blessing to the sick, isn't it? And of course, that follows Jesus' example, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. So Jesus asks a question. It's a, it's a legitimate question. Which is easier to say to the sick of the palsy? Arise, take up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven. Folks, it's hugely easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see them. He poses the question, doesn't wait for the answer, but he says, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up your bed and go, to your, go your way into your house. And immediately he arose and took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God. Here's another glorifying God because somebody gets well. Nobody's glorifying God when he's being let down saying, oh, glory to God, he's crippled. But they're glorifying God when he's well. And they glorified God saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Why are they saying we never saw it like this? Because of the point that Jesus makes. And so much of the church misses the point. Jesus is saying, which is easier? His question is very simple. Which is easier to say to the sick of the palsy? We know from man's standpoint which is easier to say. It's easier to say the thing that can't be seen. It's easier to say the part that doesn't put pressure on you. But which is easier to say? Jesus says, so that you know that I have power on the earth to forgive sins, I'll heal. What's he saying? He's saying it's the same power. The same power that forgives is the power that heals. That's why his question, which is easier to say? Same difference. Because it's the same power. Same exact power. And he said healing is the proof of redemption. Please get that. He's saying healing is the proof, but that you may know. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to prove something to you. What am I going to prove to you? Am I going to prove to you that I'm the Son of God? No, I'm going to prove to you that the same power that heals is the power that forgives. Now, in the Jewish mind of that day, specifically the religious mind, Healing was something that God sometimes does through special people, but never forgiveness of sins. 
That wasn't even done on the Day of Atonement. That just kind of covered things up. But you weren't really forgiven of your sins. It was just kind of passed over for another year. Jesus is saying, here's the proof that forgiveness of sins is available. Well, what's that proof, Jesus? Healing. In other words, he's saying healing mercy and saving mercy are one and the same. They're one and the same. How do you access that mercy? Turn with me over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse, uh, oh boy, it's a lot. Um, I better start in verse 36 to show you the, the context. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went down to the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, I guess that was her label, a woman in the city, most, uh, most theologians accept or assume that she was a prostitute, somebody whose lifestyle was such that everybody recognized he was a sinner, perhaps a prostitute, I don't know. Anyway, it says, The woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with his tears. Now, Jesus is not sitting in the chair like you are. Jesus is reclining to eat like they, like they still do in the east. And as a result, she's behind him. His feet are out to the side of him and she's wiping his feet and doing all that kind of stuff. So she stood at his feet behind him, weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, good old religious folks, you know, the ones that care about sinners. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have something to say unto you. And he said, Say on, Master. Jesus tells a story. He said, There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. One owed him 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? And Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, See you, Seest thou this woman? I entered into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou, did not, thou didst not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto her, unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, verse 48 is what I want you to see, and he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven thee. And he, they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. In the original Greek, it says, The faith of thee has saved thee. The faith of thee has saved thee. How did she access the mercy of God for forgiveness of sins? Or what we would call salvation? By faith. Look with me over to Luke chapter 17. 
Luke chapter 18, I'm sorry. I'm trying to get there. I'm working hard. Luke chapter 18. We're going to have to start reading here in verse 35. And it came to pass that as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passes by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. What's he asking for? He's asking for mercy. And they which went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. Folks, I want you to understand one thing about this guy. He would not stop seeking God's mercy. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? Again, he's crying for mercy. Jesus needs to know how. And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith has saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. Same phrase. The faith of thee has saved thee. Luke chapter 7. Woman, your sins are forgiven because the faith of thee has saved thee. Luke chapter 18. Receive your sight because the faith of thee has saved thee. Not only is healing and forgiveness the same power, but to access the mercy of God for healing or forgiveness is the same faith. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews was not written in chapter and verse, so we're going to cross over the chapter line. Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Verily, verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. The description of Jesus in his, in his priestly ministry right now is that he's merciful and faithful. A merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able also to succor, that means to aid or relieve them that are tempted. Wherefore, chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. What does it say Jesus is the high priest of? It says Jesus is the high priest of your words. A high priest offers things two ways. A high priest ministers to God on behalf of the people, and he ministers to the people on behalf of God. What does he minister to God on your behalf? Your words. Now remember, Jesus identified faith as believing in the heart and saying with the mouth in Mark chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. Believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. What have we just seen about the mercy of God? The same power that forgives sins is the power that heals the sick. The same way to access the healing mercy and the saving or forgiving mercy of God is the same faith. The faith of thee has saved thee. It's not a different faith. 
You'll hear some people in the modern day church world say, well, healing's been done away with. Has faith been done away with? If faith's been done away with, nobody can get saved. Because Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So if faith's been done away with, nobody's saved. The Bible doesn't say healing has an exp expiration date. The Bible doesn't say that healing will last to a certain point. It never says that. In fact, it, says, it goes further and it says that faith is eternal. That means you can access anything that we can identify as the mercy of God by one thing, faith. Same faith. Same faith. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. In other words, hang on to what you're saying. Your words are important then, aren't they? Since Jesus is our high priest seated at the right hand of God, your words really matter. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The word touched there is the word compassion or mercy. In other words, it's saying he has mercy for your weaknesses. He knows where you mess up. He knows where you fail, but don't let it change your confession. He knows where you, where you fall short. He knows where you failed to do what you committed yourself to do. He knows where you failed to obey the word. He knows where you failed to honor your promise to God. He knows where you messed up. He knows he gets it. He knows the circumstances that you're facing that try to take you away from confessing the word, but he never makes an excuse for it. He says he can, he's touched with it. He has mercy and compassion on you because of the circumstance you face, but don't let it affect your words. Don't let your weakness, don't let your feeling of insecurity, your feeling of unrighteousness say that you're un, make you say that you're unrighteous. Don't let your feeling of weakness keep you from saying that you're strong in the Lord. Don't let the circumstances of sickness in your life keep you from saying, by His stripes I'm healed. It's right there. This is not some new doctrine, folks. The Holy Ghost gave us record of it. I think Paul's the one that wrote it, but whoever it is was inspired by the Holy Ghost. It's right there. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, Jesus is easily touched. His mercy and His compassion is easily reached. Why? Because He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet He was without sin. He knows. He gets it. What's the end result? Verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly. Because His mercy never endures forever. Because His mercy never fails. Let us therefore come boldly. He gets it. He knows how you feel. He knows what you're faced with. He knows the temptations to speak something contrary to the Word. Don't do it. He understands. So what are we supposed to do? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Why would we want to do that? That we may obtain mercy. I want you to understand something, folks. If the Bible is to be believed, if the Bible is to be believed, this verse of Scripture, we could prove it with many others, but this verse of Scripture just alone tells us that if we fail to obtain mercy, it's because of us, not because of God. God. 
If we fail to obtain mercy, it's because of our profession or confession. Our words, in other words, not because of God's will. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Remember where we started in Psalm 145 verse 8? The Lord is gracious and full of compassion or mercy, slow to anger and of great mercy. Grace is, is connected intricately with mercy and or compassion. Here it is too. Meaning God hadn't changed. God hasn't changed. Now folks... When you start talking about faith, so many times people get this idea, faith is such a hard thing. Oh, man, it's going to be such work. That's not true. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus comes to his disciples. He's been away to the mountain of transfiguration, and there's scribes, there's Pharisees, there's all kinds of people questioning with the disciples. Big crowd, big row. He comes to the disciples and says, what is going on here? And one guy speaks up and says, Master, I brought my son to your disciples to cast the devil out of him, and they couldn't do it. He winds up saying, I don't know if you can do anything to help me, but if you can, have mercy on me and help me. So he's asking for mercy, but Jesus has to fix something first because the way you obtain mercy is by faith. So Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Now stop and think about what this father has endured. We know that this evil spirit has dominated this child since the time he was a a little kid. We don't know how old he is at this point, but since he was a young child, the Bible says, the father explains to Jesus, he's thrown him into the fire to try to destroy him, thrown him into the water, do all kinds of things to, to try to take this little boy's life or this son's life. I keep saying little boy. It's been since a little boy, but we don't know how old he is. The implication is it's been a while. So he's had everything, every circumstance to tell him and to show him we are in a desperate situation. I mean, what would you do if that was your child? What would you do? You would certainly be tempted to lose hope, wouldn't you? Then he hears that Jesus is healing people and setting people free. So he comes to where Jesus' company is, but Jesus isn't there. That had to be a little discouraging for him too. When's he going to be back? Well, I don't know. He went to be transfigured, so, you know, who knows how long that takes. But the disciples speak up and say, wait a minute, we've got the same authority to cast out devils that Jesus does. He gave it to us over in Mark chapter 10. uh, Matthew chapter 10. We've got the same power. We can handle this. Really? Can't you just see his hopes start to rise? Really? Can you do that? You mean Jesus doesn't have to be here? No, no problem. We can handle this. So what do they do? They try to cast the devil out of this little boy. And nothing works. Can't you see his feathers fall? I thought you said you could do this. Can anybody do this? Well, yeah, the disciples answer, we don't understand this. We've got the same power that Jesus has. You mean Jesus couldn't do anything even if he was here? That's how the Father would hear it. Father wouldn't be sitting back there and saying, well, I know you guys are a bunch of flunkies. I'm waiting for the real guy. That's not the way he's looking at this. He's been told by them. I'm sure they told him if I was there, I would have been the one to tell them. We've got the same power. He gave us power to cast out devils. We can do this. And then when they couldn't do it, he's going to think, well, if they can't do it, then Jesus wouldn't be able to do it either. 
I'm back to hopeless. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus says, what's going on? The father tells the story and says, if you can do anything, help us. Please, just take compassion on us and help us if you can. Jesus turns it around. He says, if you can believe. This guy has every reason not to believe. Not from his past, not just from his history, but from his present morning's experience with the disciples. You know, the great apostles that were given the power in the church. Everything's going against this guy. And so he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus knows he can't do anything unless he can turn the guy's believing around. The guy doesn't know if he can. Now, I, we, I was hoping you could. That's why I brought my son. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus turns it right back on him. He says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. What does the father answer? He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I understand where he's coming from. When you think about what he's endured, what he's experienced, even at the hands of the disciples, I understand. This is not some great statement of faith. This is not some, I believe I receive healing in Jesus' name. This is not him standing up and saying, I am strong in the Lord and the power of his might. This is him saying, Okay, Lord, I I do believe, but you know what I'm going through. But because Jesus, who is the same then as he is now, is touched with the feeling of your infirmities, took the little, tiny, mustard seed faith of this guy simply saying, and, and folks, you judge this for yourself, but I believe it's the equivalent, at least, of this man saying, I choose to believe. He's got no evidence. He's got no reason to believe other than what he might have heard about Jesus that brought him there to begin with. And we don't know what that was. But it was, it was something that spurred him to bring his son. So he says in the smallest possible way, he says, okay, Lord, I believe. And Jesus turns it around and casts the devil out of that boy. You can't tell me that God requires more faith today than he required of that father at that point in time. If he does then he's a respecter of persons. If he gave this guy a pass just because the disciples were idiots that morning, but won't give us one when we face the same circumstances, then God's a respecter of persons. And the Bible says very specifically that being a respecter of persons means you are a lawbreaker, which means God would be a sinner himself. If God sins, he has no right to demand that you and I not sin. Now, I know this is sacrilegious. I know the religious people are throwing shoes at the TV st- sets right now. I-, I get that. I understand that. This is blasphemy. Same thing that the scribes and Pharisees did with Jesus. Who does this guy think he is talking like that? But, folks, everything I just said is true. Whether it fits your religious doctrine or not, everything I just said is true. If God expects more out of you than he expected out of him in order to obtain mercy for deliverance or healing, then God's a respecter of persons. What I'm trying to get across to you is that faith is the easiest thing that there is. Don't let the devil push you into thinking faith is this hard thing that you have to work year after year after year after year after year and then finally maybe you'll push over into it, but probably not. Now, remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman? Naaman was one of the captains of the Syrian host. 
Syria, uh, Syria had, uh, had conquered Israel, and as a result, they had taken certain captives. One of the captives that he had taken, one of the slaves that he had taken or purchased or whatever, was uh, a little Jewish girl. And she was a maid in, in, uh, to, to, his, to Naaman's wife in uh, their house, and Naaman contracted leprosy. We don't know how. We don't know how long he had it, but he contracted leprosy. And as a result, he was doing everything he could to get rid of this dreaded disease, but there was no medical cure. And so the, the little maid, the little Jewish servant girl, said to Naaman's wife, if only we were over in Israel, because there's a prophet there that could heal Naaman, my master of his leprosy. Word gets back to Naaman, and he says, are you kidding me? We'll go to Israel. He goes to the king of Syria. The king of Syria writes a letter to the king of Israel and says, I want you to see to it that my servant, my general, uh, army captain, whatever he was, that this guy Naaman gets to whoever he needs to be healed of his leprosy. Well, the letter, Naaman goes and takes the letter to the king of Israel. The king of Israel tears his clothes and saying, my God, what am I supposed to do with this? I'm supposed to be responsible for Naaman being healed of, a, of an incurable disease? This is just an excuse for Syria to attack us again. But over on the backside of the, of the desert, there's a prophet by the name of Elisha. He hears that the king of Israel is rent his clothes. All of Israel is running around going, oh, no. The king's not doing anything about this. He thinks this is a terrible thing. The Syrians are coming after us again. The prophet hears about it. And he says, tell Naaman to come over here. Sends word, sends a messenger over there. Naaman hears about it where the prophet says, tell him to come over here and I'll heal his sickness. I'll heal this leprosy. Naaman packs up his stuff, takes his company and goes to Elisha's house. Stands out in front of Elisha's door and Elisha sends a messenger out and says, go tell him to dip seven times in the Jordan River. <laughs> Folks, this is not how you receive great men. Naaman hears this and gets totally upset. I mean, he goes extra crispy instantly. He says, who does this guy think he is? Does he not know who I am? I mean, for goodness sakes, I expected he'd at least come to the front door and strike his hand over the place. See, we get our own ideas about how healing works. I thought he would at least strike his hand over the place or speak some kind of words or something. He wants me to go dip in the dirtiest river around. Why did I even come over here? I could have stayed over in Damascus. Dipped in the, the, the par, far, far rivers or whatever the things are called. Abana and Parfar. Those are better waters than Jordan River. That's the dirtiest, muddiest thing I've ever seen. And I'm supposed to do that, the great man that I am? He almost missed it, didn't he? But somebody in the company said, Sir, please, may I speak to you for just a moment? If he had asked you to do something hard, You'd have done it. Don't let your thinking that this is too easy keep you from receiving. Did you hear the way I said that? Don't let your thinking that faith is too easy keep you from receiving from God. He goes and dips seven times in the River Jordan and comes out clean. Boy, now his tune's changed. He goes back to Elisha and he says, let me give you everything I've got. And Elisha says, it's not time to receive offerings. There is a time. There is a time. 
but not when people think that they're buying something from God. Folks, have you heard anything I've said this morning? Do you get the point that the Bible is making to us? If we had someone here, it wouldn't matter who it was. The, 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 the worst sinner, if we had a serial killer here this morning, we may. <laughs> had to check. If we had somebody that was, that was the worst sinner you could possibly imagine, I mean, if, if, if some terrorist, jihadist terrorist, was in here this morning disguised so that we wouldn't know who they were. If, if, if they chose to simply do what the Bible says to give their heart to Jesus, we would, without hesitation, without any kind of restrictions, we would say God would certainly forgive their sins. You know why? Because when Jesus was raised from the dead, He didn't just open the door to the mercy of God. He kicked the door down. And for that reason, whether it's in a church service, whether it's in a foreign crusade, whether it's on the job, whether it's in your car, whether it's at home, no matter what, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You don't have to wait for a special evangelistic service for somebody to get saved. All it takes was somebody, very simply, childlike faith, saying, Father, I see in your word that Jesus died for my sins, and if I'll confess him as my Lord, I'll be saved. I choose to confess Him as my Lord. It comes at the choice of the individual. Salvation comes when the person decides because the door of mercy for salvation has been opened. Why do we treat the sick differently? The same door of mercy has been opened for the sick. Whether it's a headache or whether it's somebody that has leprosy or whether it's somebody that's crippled or whether it's somebody that's blind or whether somebody that's deaf, or whether somebody that's missing a body part. The same door of mercy has been kicked in. And that's why Jesus was raised from the dead. That's why Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly. Can I say something very specific? I'm going to anyway. I'm just trying to be nice about doing it. <laughs> Just as much as it is the choice of the individual when they get saved. And you can get saved anytime, anywhere. You don't need a preacher to pray for you. You don't need a church service. You don't need a special evangelist. Any person, anytime, under any circumstances can pray and get saved right where they are simply by doing what the Bible says to do, reaching out in faith. In the same way, every person that's sick decides when they're healed. It doesn't take a special healing anointing. It doesn't take a special church service. It doesn't take a special atmosphere or move of God. Now, those things are great. Why does God do them then, Pastor Mike? Doesn't the Bible say the anointing breaks the yoke? Yeah, it does. Who's the anointed one? Jesus. He's everywhere. He's not just in church services. Matter of fact, I've been to some church services wondering where he was. The Word is anointed. The Lord worked with the disciples confirming the Word with signs following. 
The sick decide when they're going to be well. Not God. So many times people are sitting back there waiting. They're waiting for something. They're waiting for a feeling. They're waiting for some move. They're waiting for some action. Naaman did that and almost missed it. What was the instruction to Naaman? Just go do what the prophet said to do. That's the equivalent. That's a type of just do what the Bible says. Naaman had the word of the prophet. You've got a greater word than that. You've got the word of God himself saying himself took your infirmities and bore your sickness. With childlike faith, any sick person, no matter what their condition is, could receive their healing immediately. Saving mercy is not more real than healing mercy. The Bible shows us that. You decide. You decide. Have you ever noticed how many times Jesus told people to do things they couldn't do? Person's in the synagogue and he's got a withered hand. You know what that means? That means it's a hand that's drawn up that can't move. What does Jesus tell him to do? He tells him to stretch it out. How does somebody that can't move their arm, or their hand at least, stretch out their hand? How many times did Jesus tell somebody that was crippled, rise, take up your bed, and walk? How does somebody that's crippled rise and walk? See, here's where the mind comes in. People start thinking, well, well, well wait a minute, Pastor Mike. How am I supposed to get up and walk when my, when I, my body won't move? How do I do that? Folks, please understand. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I'm not saying rise and walk because your body says you can't. I'm saying rise and walk because of what Jesus did. Jesus told the people that he ministered to to take a step before they believed they could or before they thought they could or before they felt they could. Maybe believe is not the right word to use, but you know what I'm trying to say. He told them to do something they couldn't do. He told them to do something they couldn't do. Why? Because the mercy of the Lord endures forever. So come boldly to the throne of grace. You need a favor from God? Whether it's salvation, whether it's healing, whether it's deliverance, whether it's provision, you need a favor from God? Here's how you get it. Come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy. What, what area of mercy do you need? Saving, healing, delivering, Providing that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's all stand together. We're going to praise God for a few moments. If that's all right. Let's just lift our hands. Start worshiping the Lord. Joseph, can you play something about the mercy of God, please? Hallelujah. Lord, so many times we've thought we were waiting on you and you've been waiting on us. Waiting on us. We've been waiting to find out what your timing is and you've been waiting to find out when we're ready. Oh, thank you for your mercy, Lord. Thank you for your saving mercy, your healing mercy, your delivering mercy, your mercy of provision. <laughs> Hallelujah. Lord, we worship you.
We glorify your name. We glorify your name. We glorify your name. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. You are good and your mercy endures forever. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. We come boldly, Father, because you are good and your mercy endures forever. <laughs> Just as the blind man cried out for mercy, Father, simply because he heard that it was Jesus, we cry out for mercy for whatever we need mercy to provide, mercy to heal, mercy to deliver. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Lord, you're good and your mercy endures forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Can you play that, Joseph? The Lord is good and his mercy endures. The Lord is good and his mercy endures. Can you do that? You'll follow me. Oh, that's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. What's that song you started with this morning? Huh? That's close. Let's do that. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures that works. forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever.
Proverbs says that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Think about that in relation to Naaman. Until Naaman could change his thinking about what would work, he received nothing from the Lord. You decide. You decide when things change. You decide when you take access, take possession of the mercy of God for whatever your situation is. You decide, not God. You decide. If you're waiting for God to save you, He'll never do it. You have to choose. If you're waiting for God to heal you, it'll never happen. You have to choose. If you're waiting for God to deliver you, it'll never happen. You have to choose when deliverance is yours. If you're waiting for God to provide for you, it'll never happen. You have to decide when the provision has been made. And every one of those things, the Bible says Jesus has already done something about it. Every one of them. It says Jesus took your infirmities and he bore your sicknesses and with his stripes you were healed. It says Jesus was made poor for your sakes. Already done. So that you through his poverty might be made rich. The Bible says who the Son sets free is free indeed. There's deliverance. The freedom that he's talking about is anybody that's saved has been made free in every area. If you're waiting for God to deliver you, you're backing up. Because it'll never happen that way. It happens when you decide. You're the one that puts a demand on the mercy of God. You're the one. You know why we don't see any more results than we see? Terry Myers, when he was here, Terry was such a good thing for me to, such a good person for me to be around. The Lord spoke some things to me, very specifically. I started, uh, well, I, I told you Sunday morning, one of the things the Lord said to me, there's a big difference between being convinced and having a spirit of boldness. I said, well, Lord, what's the deal with that? Terry went to the mission fields, put the word to work, and saw miracles. I came to California, put the word to work, and saw resistance. Now, folks, when I go to Peru, I get a lot of miracles because I preach the same thing there that I preach here. What's the difference? The difference is in the attitude of the people. As a person thinks in his heart, so are they. I understand that you've got resistance to push through. I understand that there's wrong thinking that you're going to have to push through. That's fine. I'm with you. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not down on anybody. But please understand that your thinking about how it can work will be the thing that stops you from working. Just like it did with Naaman. You have to choose. Yeah, but, but Pastor Mike, won't I feel something? Won't healing feel like something? No, not till after you get it. Then you'll feel something. I was talking to somebody the other day. They've been believing God for somebody in their family to be saved for a long time. Well, they got saved when Terry was here. That Sunday night when Terry was here. I said, well, how are you feeling? She said, well, it's kind of anticlimactic. <laughs> been believing for it forever. Now it's just kind of like, yeah, well, it happened. That's how the things of God are. Don't expect some lightning bolt from heaven. Don't expect some thunder roll and some tingling skin to tell you, okay, now it's time. It's time when you say it's time because he's the high priest of your profession. It's time when you say it's time. I've had so many situations facing financial difficulties where the church is concerned. Year after year after year facing the same thing. 
One morning, I can tell you exactly, I remember this shower better than anything I've ever had in my life. I'm standing in the shower going through my same confessions that I've been making for four years. And something rose up on the inside of me. I'm not saying it was God. I just got mad. I said, I've had enough of this. I'm done with this. I've been confessing. I've been believing God. It's mine now. Things changed that day. Folks, it's not an accident that the Bible talks about people in Jesus' ministry that were sick of the palsy. It doesn't just mean sick with the palsy. It means sick of the palsy. You get sick of your situation, things will change because that's when you decide, it's mine now. So I'll stick with you. We'll keep pushing through the resistance. That's okay. I get it. But I'm going to tell you this. I'll tell you this by the Spirit of God. I'll tell you this. When we push through that resistance, people will run out of wheelchairs. Not because there was something from heaven that came down, but because they see it, they accept it, they say, I'm tired of this chair, I'm gone. Well, what's going to happen? Are you going to have a special anointing that day, Pastor Mike? No, they're just going to decide. When I run around the room, then I'll be well. Well, how does a crippled guy walk? How does a crippled guy run around the room? <laughs> That's the whole point. If you're looking to your body to tell you whether or not you can, you'll never do it. But if you decide based on what Jesus already did, folks, please understand, this picture is so big in the inside of me. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he kicked the door down for God's mercy. He didn't just open it. Here, let me just let a little crack come in. He kicked the door down. The mercy of God is available for everybody all the time. That's why the Bible said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That word saved means rescue, save, deliver, heal, make whole. You decide. Don't ever, ever, ever accuse God or question Him. When, Lord? You decide when. Jesus did the work. You decide when. Let's sing that one more time and we'll go. Folks, buckle up. Buckle up. 
Does the rain's falling on Foothill Family Church? We're not looking for God to move. God is moving. We're not looking for the Holy Ghost to move. The Holy Ghost is moving. Now, let me tell you something about that. That doesn't mean you're going to get goosebumps. You'll get goosebumps afterwards. But that doesn't mean we're looking for goosebumps and then something will happen. Smith Wigglesworth used to make this statement. He said, if the Spirit doesn't move me, I move him. And what he would do, Brother Hagin followed the same example in the early days of his ministry. He would say, the first one down here will get healed no matter what their problem is. People would almost kill each other trying to get down there. <laughs> He'd have to pray for the ones that were injured on the way. <laughs> Brother Hagin said he used to do that. He'd go to a small church, nothing would be happening, dull, dry, dead, nobody even wanting to be there in his meetings. And he'd say, first one down here, no matter what's wrong with them, will be healed. It was never somebody with a headache. Never. It was always somebody that had something seriously wrong with them. And they got them healed every time. And you know why? Because he got them to do something that they didn't think they could do. He'd ask them every time, will you do what I tell you to do? And almost always their answer would be, I will if it's easy. Everybody's looking for something easy. But he'd get them to do something that they couldn't do. When they did something that their body would not allow them to do according to their thinking, that's when the power of God took over. Folks, the mercy of God will reach you only when you step past what you think you can do. That's why it's so important. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So buckle up. We're going to have people get out of wheelchair. We're going to have people that have terminal cancers disappear. You watch. You watch. I'm saying, I, I, look, if this doesn't happen, I'm a false prophet. Stone me and leave the church. I mean it. I'm telling you this by the Holy Ghost. Now, let me tell you what I just heard. I heard somebody say, well, I'm ready to do that if somebody else will go first. Okay. Somebody will. Buckle up. Buckle up. You're going to see things just like they said. We never saw it like this before. You watch and see. Lord, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your mercy to save, your mercy to heal, your mercy to deliver, your mercy to provide. Oh, Father, I'll teach this till Jesus comes back if necessary for people to understand your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that your mercy endures forever. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. The Lord is good. And His mercy endures forever. The Lord is good. And His mercy endures forever. The Lord is good. And His mercy endures forever. He is. And it does. I'm going to quit worrying about how long I preach too. I, I'm so... I have always been... And, and, and folks, please understand, it's out of respect for you. I'm trying to respect your time. But you know, God does not work on schedules. He just doesn't. Sometimes it's a matter of, well, in Jesus' ministry it said they came to hear and to be healed. Sometimes hearing takes a while. And we're going to follow God. We're going to do what God tells us to do. 
I've already told Terry, I said, when you come back next time, I'm going to have better miracles than you do. Watch and see. Say it with me. The Lord is good. good. And His mercy endures forever. forever. Amen. Come on back and be with us tonight at Healing School. Don't forget the children's ministry uh, teachers meeting in the fellowship hall. God bless you. Thank you.